Blog Talk Radio. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, just waiting for one second to load this intro in. Bear with me. And uh, we are going to go live in a few seconds here as uh, we wait for this uh, intro to uh, let us begin. That's going to be a great show. We're going to look back on Monday Night Raw. We're going to look back on the Extreme Rules pay-per-view, which happened uh, this uh, past Sunday. And we're going to get JJ in the conversation. But first, I just did want to play the the theme song. Uh, Let's see if she's ready right now. Uh, Okay. I'll give it another 30 seconds. And then I'll go to my intro. As we are here on uh, King Jordan Radio for a Wednesday. It is May the 6th. 2014, and uh, this is King Jordan you're listening to, and uh, joining us today is the Wrestling Insider out of Chicago, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the MVP of the wrestling show, the one and only Double J, JJ. Good evening, JJ, and welcome to King Jordan Radio. How are you? What's up, King? Great to be on. Uh, As you mentioned, lots to talk about. Uh, An exciting Monday Night Raw following the Extreme Rules pay-per-view. Big things happened, and there's going to be lots of uh, fallout that I'm sure will carry on to weeks to come. And uh, it's going to be very exciting. Of course, uh, tonight, too, on the WWE Network, there's an all-new episode of Main Event which actually has a rare appearance of John Cena. And uh, also on the network tonight, there is a special WrestleMania uh, Rewind that features, I believe, uh, WrestleMania Four, the main event between Macho Man Randy Savage and Ted DiBiase for the WWE Championship. And also I believe there's a special episode of WWE Countdown, which will focus on, I think, the greatest villain. So uh, lots to talk about tonight. Yes, indeed. Let's start with the uh, Wrestling TV Network. Uh, Tell us some of the latest things that have been going on in terms of with the network. Oh, well, the WWE Network, uh, one of the latest shows that they added was, uh, as we all know, this year we celebrated the Hall of Fame and the Ultimate Warrior being brought in. And the WWE, instead of uh, uploading past Hall of Fame uh, shows you know, in their entirety, they decided to upload a Best of Hall of Fame. So you could watch 
you know, certain uh, stars like Hulk Hogan, Trish Stratus, Bobby Heenan, uh, Ric Flair, Mean Gene Okerlund, Shawn Michaels, Jerry Lawler, and Bruno San Martino. You can actually watch their Pacific Hall of Fame inductions. They call it the Best of Hall of Fame. And uh, it's pretty cool. You know, some of those we didn't even get a chance to see. I mean, uh, Bobby Heenan, uh, Gene Okerlund, Jerry Lawler. You know, sometimes you had that recap on the USA Network, but, you know, they heavily edit that. But it was really cool to see it in the entirety, you know, and especially Ric Flair, who was very emotional uh, on the Hall of Fame, talking about uh, his last match and going into uh, his match with Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania. It was a... Lots of great things on, on the network, uh, especially they have new shows that they're always trying to add new content. Uh, they're adding more episodes of ECW Hardcore TV. So a lot of ECW fans, if you want to see classic episodes of ECW, you can see some with Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, uh, Two Cold Scorpio, Terry Funk, and of course the classics like Tommy Dreamer and Raven and all that good stuff, and Taz. So a lot of really That's, good stuff. That's uh, really on played that. mostly at uh, late night. I hear it. Right? Yeah, I, I believe they're they're developing something. Uh, it hasn't come out yet, I don't think. But they are developing some shows. They're planning for a, a show. You know, as I mentioned uh, before tonight, they have a WrestleMania rewind, and I believe you watched the WrestleMania uh, rewind between Hulk Hogan and The Rock, and uh, we all saw how great that was uh, edited and put together. But uh, there's only so many WrestleMania moments you can do. So I believe one of the new shows they're going to be adding maybe this summer or this fall, they're going to add a show called uh, Wrestling Rivalries in which they can just talk about, you know, random feuds over the years, not just specific, you know, pay-per-view feuds like WrestleMania, but, you know, just stuff you've seen on television on Monday Night Raw or on other pay-per-views that you've seen over the years. So I think that's cool. They're kind of branching out to something else. You can see other great feuds that maybe weren't highlighted at WrestleMania. So that's kind of exciting, though, to uh, to watch. Uh, what about the Legends House? What's your take on that? You know, I really uh, I wasn't sure about Legends House. I am a fan of Total Divas. Uh, I watch it every Sunday, except when there's a pay-per-view, because I've watched the pay-per-view. But, you know, the they, Total Divas is a great reality show. It gives the chance to see these, these ladies a little bit more screen time because they're not featured on Monday Night Raw as much. But uh, much like Total Divas, Legends House, you get an opportunity to see these legends who maybe you haven't seen on television in years. That you know, And it's great to kind of see them and catch up with them and what they're doing. And it's uh, much different than Total Divas. Because with Total Divas, they're on the road, they're traveling, they're going from town to town, they're doing things in their personal lives. Whereas in Legends House, they're all basically kind of forced to live together. And they're all living in this one beautiful mansion. But at the same time, you have these personalities and these egos that are clashing because, they're, they're like I said, they're living together. It's one thing to, you know, hang out with someone who's your friend or you work with. Right. Another thing, live with them 24-7 and to see all their annoying habits, and that would drive anyone crazy. And when you have characters like Tony Atlas, Mean Gene Okerlund, Pat Patterson, Rowdy Rowdy Power Howard Finkel. 
Howard Finkel, the Mouse of the South, Jimmy Hart, Hillbilly Jim, and of course Hacksaw Jim Duggan. You have a lot, a lot of personalities there, and you can already see some that are clashing. And uh, one that is that's clashing is kind of Tony Atlas and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. There seems to be a bit of a, a sort of a rivalry there where they they don't always get along or they kind of cut each other off when one's talking. And uh, you know the most recent episode. The most recent episode uh, of uh, Legends House, they had uh, this bowling competition, and uh, they, you had the legends going up against these uh, these uh, desert ladies, and there were these older women, and the older women basically were just whooping these legends uh, at bowling, and uh, it's just kind of funny. You see them in a different circumstance. We're so used to seeing them in the ring, and here we are seeing them doing other things like bowling or playing uh, polo or, you know, doing all kinds of different tasks and, uh, you know, challenges that the, the show try to come up with to make the show kind of fun and exciting to see how these guys work together and how they even compete against each other sometimes. Because much like in the recent episode, they had uh, two teams. Uh, after the bowling match, they had to, you know, pitch this commercial for this uh, these products. You know, one team was, I believe, uh, Mean Gene Okerlund, uh, Jimmy Hart, Pat Patterson, I think Hillbilly Jim, and they were kind of forced to uh, work on this sort of uh, car car wash commercial. And then you had Rowdy Piper and, uh, you know, Finkel and, um, you know, Tony Atlas, and they had to come up with these, you know, fl- flamingos and rubber duckies commercials, and they were trying to figure out, you know, what is this, this you know, rubber duckies? What is this for kids? Is this for parties? And they were kind of just wondering, what the hell are we doing coming up with these, you know, a commercial for rubber duckies. So, sure enough, you know, they're, they're kind of clashing. You can kind of see Tony Atlas is giving Piper a little bit of a hard time because he didn't want to do too much in the commercial, and then a lot of guys weren't listening to his ideas, so he basically didn't want to do anything. So then Piper's trying to get him, you know, motivated. He's trying to get him to work together and be a team player, and they ended up putting a, a kind of ridiculous commercial, and they had this kind of signature catchphrase and they were just kind of saying you know the the flamingos and the rubber duckies and they just kept repeating it over and over again and eventually they had these uh, experts come over and judge their commercial and you know Mean Gene and them they had their car commercial and their commercial I don't even know how they got away with saying some of the things they, they did on there because obviously it's a you know car wash commercial you've been to the car wash you've washed your car before and they kind of they mentioned that you know the car wash had the the best hand jobs in town, and you get you know blown the best at this car wash. I'm going, oh my god, they did not just say that on their commercial. <laughs> but uh, you know it was oh it was just really, it was really funny, and uh, you know I was just laughing my head off. So I mean, there's a lot of humor there too, which uh, you know I enjoy and. Uh, you know, the Legends House, it's it's really cool to see these uh, characters, you know, just to see them in a different light and to see them doing different things. And you kind of take a, a better look at them and, you know, who they are and why they are the way they are. Sometimes you see a bit of their TV character, you know, coming out in, you know, real life, which is just kind of funny. But uh, it was uh, it was a really good, it's a really good show, and I, I recommend, especially if you're a fan of these guys, if you grew up watching them, uh 
you know, in their heyday and their prime, you know, I think you would enjoy Legends House. It's a, it's a lot of fun, and even if you're not familiar with uh, these guys, I think it's just nice to, uh, to get to know them, because obviously maybe you've heard stories about a lot of these guys over the years. We've seen lots of video clips and highlights over the years, and it's cool to get an opportunity to be exposed to these guys who maybe, like I said, you've only heard about, and you get to see them, and maybe it might get people interested to watch more of them and to uh, look them up on the network. You can just search in their names and see some of their old matches. So it's a, it's a pretty cool for fans of old and new to uh, check out Legends House. So it's a really good show. I, it's uh, highly entertaining. I definitely recommend, you know, wrestling fans check it out if they can. Absolutely. No question. Now, before we get into extreme rules, uh, can you give me a grade? for Extreme Rules 2014. Yeah, well, it was kind of interesting because as I was, you know, watching Extreme Rules, and, of course, you know, I kind of do my digging and I see what other people are saying. And it was all, all of all people, Jim Ross actually gave the pay-per-view a, a B plus. And I was looking at the show, and I think, uh, you know, Extreme Rules is kind of a tough pay-per-view because on the one hand, it's Extreme Rules. And anyone who's a wrestling fan, when you think of Extreme Rules, you already automatically have high expectations of what you want That's to right. see. And then there's also the fact that this is the first pay-per-view after WrestleMania, which can be very difficult because obviously WrestleMania, there's a lot of built-up, a lot of feuds are, are either ending or just beginning. And this is the first major pay-per-view after Extreme Rules. Will the, the matches be kind of flat? Will the superstars and the rivalries not be as hot as they were for WrestleMania? So there's a lot going into Extreme Rules. But I, honestly, I thought uh, they did a pretty good job uh, just you know delivering what they could with the matches they had, you know. There were some matches that were a lot better than others, but then there wasn't necessarily a bad match on the show. So I, I kind of agree with JR, and I would give it maybe a, a B or, or a B plus. It was it was a good show. You know, could have been better. Yeah, I think maybe they could have done more here and there, but overall, I thought they did a pretty good job. Best match, worst match. Oh, well, that's, uh, that one's easy for me. As much as uh, I love Daniel Bryan, and we'll talk about this later during the match because uh, there was a, a really a surprising moment in that match that I did not expect to happen. But uh, as much as I like Daniel Bryan and as much as he's a hard worker, i got to say, without a doubt, the match of the night was Evolution versus Shield. The Shield was just amazing. All three guys really stepped up and they delivered in, in ways that I can't even describe. I'm going to try my best to describe it, but uh, they these guys went above and beyond, and they, they stole the show, in my opinion. I thought Shield did a fantastic job. Uh, the worst match of the night, this is going to surprise you, because when I was going into Extreme Rules, my expectations of the pre-show with El Torito and Hornswoggle, I thought, oh, my God, that match is going to be a disaster. And yet, like I said, I'll talk about that when we recap the, the pay-per-view, but I wasn't disappointed in that match. I actually thought, believe it or not, I thought that match could have been on the pay-per-view. If I had to describe the weakest or the worst match of the night, I would say it was probably Alexander Rusev in his handicap match against R-Truth and Xavier Woods. Uh, unfortunately for me, I, that, that match didn't really 
really mean anything to me. It was a handicap match. We've seen Rusev destroy R-Truth and Xavier Woods in singles competition. This was their chance to get back at him in a handicap match. And it just, uh, it's, to me, it, it fell a little flat. I think the most exciting thing in that match was Rusev's valet, the ravishing Lana. There were actually people chanting for Lana than anyone in the match. So, you know, that's not really a good sign when people are chanting for anyone else that's in the ring. But, uh, you know, like I said, that match, it fell a little flat. So if I had to say it was the worst match, it you know, that was definitely the match that fell flat for me and maybe didn't deliver as well as it could. Interesting. How was, let's get into the intercontinental qualifying contest. Yes, uh, as you know, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, the WWE actually putting a little emphasis on the Intercontinental Championship. They came up with this tournament. Uh, It was actually kind of cool to me because they did this tournament right after the Ultimate Warrior's passing, and a lot of fans remember the Ultimate Warrior as a really great Intercontinental Champion. And, uh, you know, I thought that was kind of... Did you ever get a chance to see that documentary that they did on the uh, network? Very well done. Oh, exactly. Uh, As you said, the the network did a phenomenal job with the Ultimate Warrior. They had basically four hours of uh, Ultimate Warrior tributes. Every day they had sort of something different. I think... uh, Trying to remember, I think Tuesday when they first you know started to air it, they had uh, you know his greatest matches, and of course they had um, from a match with Ultimate Warrior from uh, 1987, I believe it was Warrior versus Barry uh, Horowitz, and uh, they also included the SummerSlam match for the Intercontinental Championship against Honky Tonk Man. They had a match against Andre the Giant from uh, 1989. And they had a match against wow. Ted DiBiase from uh, 1990 in Japan. And they had a really cool match with the Ultimate Warrior and Rick Rude. And I kind of forgot the, the matches that Warrior had with Rude. So it was really cool to kind of relive that because, wow, they actually had some pretty good matches together, uh, Rick Rude and Ultimate Warrior. So it was cool to, to kind of see that. Of course, many superstars and legends uh, you know, tape something just to talk about Warrior, which is really cool. And this wasn't, you know, the WWE, you know, with superstars at a green screen with a great production. A lot of this was done, you know, very quickly because of the, his passing. And a lot of this was just superstars in their home. You know, it wasn't a fancy, you know, like I said, a green screen. It didn't have a great sound. They probably just used you know, their their camera, their iPhone to even record some of these videos because the quality wasn't, uh, you know, as crystal clear or as great. But they just wanted to have that opportunity to speak about the warrior and pay tribute to him and to have it to be included right away with uh, this, this special package of the Ultimate Warrior Tribute Week. And I thought that was really cool. Guys like, you know, Shawn Michaels, Scott Hall, and uh, Ricky Steamboat, uh, even Chris Jericho, Batista, Hogan, Cena, and even some of the stars from NXT like Sami Zayn and CJ Parker. And, of course, the, the biggest one that surprised me that was really cool to see was Sting, the icon Sting, his first you know, yeah. big televised appearance for the WWE, and it all happened during Warrior Week when he talked about his memories 
with the Ultimate Warrior, and when they broke into the business together. And, uh, you know, it was really cool to, to hear a lot of these stories. And, of course, they also did a special WrestleMania Rewind episode of Ultimate Warrior versus Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania Six, And that was, you know, we always talk about, uh, you know, his greatest match. Was it bad or was it against Savage? But a lot of fans love this match just because it's a match where he won the title from Hogan, of all people. Hogan, who was basically right. unstoppable for the past, you know, five WrestleManias. You know, his matches with, you know, uh, Piper and his match against Andre, especially. And, you know, War, uh, Hogan was just, I mean, you couldn't stop Hulkamania. It was really at its peak. He was, you know, a big uh, media darling. And then all of a sudden you have this upstart, you know, warrior challenging him, and he's the Intercontinental Champion. So it's kind of cool, this champion versus champion, and you think that maybe, just maybe, Warrior doesn't have a chance to stop Hulkamania and all of its Hulkamaniacs. But actually, if you watch that, there's a lot of Warrior Maniacs in the audience that night, and you could see that you know there was a, a big shift in the WWE that night. And you know Warrior defeated Hulk Hogan, and he won the WWE Championship, and I remember him holding both titles, and that was a, just a really cool moment. And they, it's cool because they kind of talk about that moment and what went into it and how they kind of teased it at the Royal Rumble that year in 1990 when they had, you know, Warrior and Hogan as the last two men in the ring, and you kind of saw the wheels were turning, like, uh-oh, there's going to be this clash between these two titans. So uh, it's kind of cool to see even back then that they were, you know, planting the seeds to a lot of big matches. And what made that match so special, too, was they were two good guys. How often in wrestling, you know, at that time, did you see two good guys squaring off in the ring? You always had kind of the big heel and the biggest face. You know, it was good guy versus bad guy. You rarely ever saw you know, bad guy versus bad guy or, you know, good guy versus good guy because it, it confuses the audience. The audience don't know who to cheer for. So it was it was very rare and very unique, and you could tell by that match, as I said, the audience was split. You have, of course, the fans who are diehard Hulkamaniacs in the red and yellow, and then you have the other uh, half, which are Hulk, uh, Ultimate Warrior fans, and they got the face paint, you know, they got their face all painted, which is cool. And uh, it was definitely, you know, very uh, unique that something we see a lot of maybe today where the fans are split. But back then, to see something like that, it was very rare. It didn't happen very often or it didn't happen at all. So, uh, you know, it was pretty cool. And like I said, guys like Jerry Lawler, uh, Cesaro, Daniel Bryan, even Vince McMahon himself, uh, Dolph Ziggler, Damian Sandow, A.J. Lee, Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, Jim Ross, Pat Patterson, a lot of guys talked about, you know, what that match meant to them. You know, some of the guys like Vince and Patterson and Hacksaw who were in the WWE at the time, you know, they could tell you some of the behind-the-scenes, whereas superstars of today, you know, they were just fans. A lot of them were just kids when they were watching that, and they were inspired, you know, by Ultimate Warrior or Hulk Hogan. And, you know, yeah, they and became they wrestling. There. Yeah, it, it's pretty wild to think about. And uh, in that video, we saw Sting, as you pointed out. I don't think they would have brought him out, but you had to put him in that documentary because uh, they were they they were the Blade Runners together in the very beginning. 
And Cesaro was a uh, big fan of the Warrior, it seems, because he yeah. he knew everything. Yeah, even Batista. Batista said one of the reasons why he shakes the ropes before he delivers his Batista bomb, it was you know him paying a tribute to the Warrior. So I think, you know, it's kind of cool to see guys today and, you know, someone like Batista, who, you know, he's kind of moving into that sort of Hollywood and movies and Quentin Tarantino and Marvel. And here he is, you know, he's talking about the ultimate warrior and he looks like a, a little kid. And he's talking about how much, you know, he was inspired by him and how much, you know, he loved his energy and his intensity. It's it's kind of cool to see that side of superstars because so much when we see them, we see them as superstars. We don't really see them as regular people when they are. They're just like us, you know. They they were fans of this business too. They were watching it at the arenas, at the televisions, at home, you know, just like we did. Yeah, and uh, if you notice. Triple H gets pretty emotional, as does Vince McMahon, when they start talking about uh, Warrior. And uh, you also notice that all the things that Warrior and Hogan were uh, going through, whatever it was, it shows you that even the worst of things can be forgiven. And uh, as Triple H pointed out, Warrior, you couldn't take that smile off of him. And as Vince pointed out, you know, you, it was almost destined, you know, if he had a go, at least, at least he got, he went out on a high note. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the thing that's very uh, special about, if anything, with Triple H, a lot of people don't give Triple H enough credit because he's the one who's kind of doing a lot of these negotiations, especially with guys like Bruno and Ultimate Warrior. He was really hands-on with negotiating and talking with Warrior as often as he could over the phone, trading emails, texts, you know, what have you. So he was spending a lot of months you know, talking to the Warrior and trying to convince him to, to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. It wasn't Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon might have gave him his blessing, but at the end of the day, it was Triple H who was kind of that bridge that was trying to get Warrior to come across and to, you know, accept his position at the Hall of Fame. And, of course, Warriors, you know, one of the only ways he would do that is if they told the right story because, obviously, he was so hurt and he felt, you know, so betrayed by them when they released that negative DVD. And, you know, he said, why would you induct someone into the Hall of Fame, kind of smear propaganda out there, saying that I had terrible matches and that I couldn't work with anyone? Why would you want that character in the Hall of Fame? You know, if you want me in the Hall of Fame, you've got to do it the right way, and you've got to tell the right story. And they finally did. And uh, it was cool that uh, we even saw Warrior during the documentary, which was something they aired as well. And they, they showed Warrior arrive at Stanford and going into the WWE headquarters. And, you know, you just kind of see him, you know, browsing around and talking to Triple H in Triple H's office. And they're just kind of, you know, shooting, you know, and talking about things and, of course, negotiating. And they're talking about merchandising. And they have all these Ultimate Warrior logos and, you know, symbols and colors. And they want Warrior to, you know, choose which one he wants them to run with. So it, it was really right. cool to see the behind-the-scenes stuff. And as you mentioned, Vince McMahon got very, very emotional, too, because from what I understood, uh, you know, when Warrior was there that Monday night, 
on Raw, you know, he took a photo with Vince McMahon before he left the building. And uh, as Vince pointed yeah, out, Stephanie took the photo. Yeah, I believe, I believe you're right. Stephanie took the photo with Warrior and Vince together, and they were kind of hugging each other. And Vince said, Vince got very emotional, and he said, you know, that could have been Warrior's last photo, you know, before he died. So Vince was, you know, very, he, he definitely, you could tell that meant something to him, that, uh, you know, they were able to have that peace and to have that friendship back. And uh, it's just, it's a very, very sad, but at the same time, as you mentioned, it's kind of bittersweet that he went out and he went out, you know, at peace with everything, you know, all the feuds, all the arguments, all the, you know, all the stuff that went down over the years, you know, they kind of put it in the past and they focused on the present and they focused on working together in the future and, you know, things were just, you know, to the sky and, and up, you know, things were looking so great and we're looking forward to so many great things between uh, the partnership of Warrior and the WWE again. And uh, while it's sad that it had to end the way it did, uh, we are, you know, thankful that we did get to see him that one more time and especially getting the respect that he deserved after everything he contributed, you know, to the business. Yeah, and, uh, especially that was uh, something else, that documentary. And uh, besides that, they have uh, other good things on uh, the WWE Network, and uh, it, it seems to be working out so far. But we'll have to find out in uh, about a year from now where they are in terms of business. Have they met, met their quotas, so to speak? So uh, WWE Network so far so good. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it's definitely, if you have it you know, in the United States right now, uh, I think it's, it's awesome. Unfortunately, there are people, you know, in Canada, Australia, and other countries who are unable to get the network in their area right now. Hopefully, uh, the WWE will be making it available towards the end of the year. I know some of them said that they'll have it ready by 2015. So I think that'll definitely have a huge, huge increase and subscribers once it officially goes worldwide. You have to understand that right now it's not worldwide. Right now it's just in the United States. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it is in Canada, though. I'm not sure. No, it, 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 I don't have it. Not in Canada? No. Oh, I know Lance Storm. You know, I follow Lance Storm on Twitter, and he always talks about uh, he doesn't have the network. You know, fans always ask him, oh, did you see this or do, did you watch this? And he goes, I, the, net, the network's not available in Canada, so you know, I, I don't know. So, unfortunately, not even in Canada. You would think, I mean, there are neighbors to the north. Why wouldn't they get it? Uh, it's beyond me, but unfortunately, not even Canada has it. It's Right now, it's exclusive to the United States until, you know, they make it public to other regions. Yeah, I just thought that something on the internet just stays worldwide, but I guess it's like a cable to a yeah. certain extent. Okay, uh, back to Extreme Rules. Uh, tell me about the uh, Daniel Bryant-Kane match. Yeah, well, yeah, this was a huge surprise to me because obviously I knew going into it uh, we have Daniel Bryan versus Kane. This is for the WWE World Championship. 
but of course the WWE was trying to make it very personal. They had Kane attacking Daniel's wife, Brie Bella, so they tried to make it more personal than for the championship. So you definitely saw Daniel Bryan trying to get uh, retribution on Kane and get revenge after him attacking his wife all, the, all those times on Raw. So, uh, you know, this was a match. I, you know, Daniel Bryan definitely went full force. He delivered the goods. He did some great stuff. They, uh, I believe it was a no disqualifications match. They didn't call it a extreme rules match. I think it was no disqualifications. And of course, you saw Bryan. Yeah, you saw Bryan using a, a kendo stick. And every time he would whack Kane with the kendo stick, the fans would chant yes. And he must have did it about a dozen times or so. He just beat Kane relentlessly with the kendo stick. And uh, they eventually made their way. They were fighting pretty much all over the arena. And Kane even took Brian and he threw him against the, the stage in that sort of uh, lighting grid where you see, you know, the logo of, of the pay-per-view. And even the grid went out when Brian was slammed against it. Uh, they even made their way backstage, and they were in sort of like the parking lot. And, of course, uh, Daniel Bryan, you know, rushed towards Kane to deliver, you know, his uh, clothesline. And then Kane ducked and did a back body drop to Daniel Bryan on one of the cars in the parking lot. And, uh, like I said, these guys were just fighting very intense, you know, and Kane was doing his, you know, uppercuts and punches. And he even tried to punch Daniel Bryan, and Bryan got out of the way and, and Kane's fist went through a glass window. So, I mean, it got pretty physical. And there was even one point where Brian picked up a shovel, even though we're in spring, there was a shovel in the parking lot, and he was just whacking, uh, you know, Kane with the shovel repeatedly until Kane just went down. But, like I said, they're all the way in the parking lot, and this isn't a false count anywhere match. The only way to win is to drag your opponent and put him into the ring and pin him. But, of course, Kane is a much larger superstar than Daniel. So Daniel thought, how am I going to get this big red monster to the ring? So he looked around, and he saw a forklift. So he put Kane on the forklift, on the, on the actual lift, and he, he carried him. He drove the forklift from the parking lot all the way through the backstage into the arena, and here you see him. He raised the forklift. He raised the forklift as high as it could go, and he carried it even closer to the ring, and then he had the forklift dump Kane into the ring. And this was something that reminded me of the days of Stone Cold Steve Austin when he used to sort of hijack, you know, whatever vehicle he could backstage, whether it was a beer truck or, you know, a cement truck or a monster truck. And we saw kind of Daniel Bryan continue that with the, the forklift. And he used it in a very unique way. A lot of people said that that kind of took a lot of time away because here you have Daniel Bryan setting him up on the forklift and starting it and then driving through. So, you know, a lot of fans said, well, it took too much time. But, you know, it was something different. It was something we haven't seen before. So I give him kudos for just trying something new. And in a, in a time when we kind of see the same old, same old, you know, it's refreshing to see something new for a change. So, you know, when they made their way back to the ring and Daniel tried to pin Kane, of course, Kane kicked out. And then they made their way to the, you know, ringside. And Kane slammed Daniel Bryan through the announce table. 
he chokeslammed him through the announce table and that he was trying to pin him. And Brian, you know, the, the ever-resilient uh, champion, he kicked out. And they were continuing to fighting back and forth. And at one point, Kane brought out a table. He brought out a table. He put it uh, on the floor. He set it up. And Brian was towards the apron. And, you know, Kane just kind of knocked him down. He went back to the table. And sure enough, I, I saw something happening in the corner of my eye. And I saw a bunch of guys in black shirts with, like, a fire extinguisher. And I thought, what the hell are these guys doing with fire extinguishers? And sure enough, Kane would get gasoline and pour it all over the table, and then he lit the table on fire. And that shocked the hell out of me, because I did not expect a flaming table in the, in the PG era of WWE. I mean, we haven't seen a flaming table in WWE, I think, not since maybe one of the ECW one-night stand pay-per-views in maybe 06 or 05, or WrestleMania 22 with Edge and Mick Foley, you know, in, in Chicago where Edge did the spear. He speared Foley out of the ring onto a flaming table. I mean, that's the last time we saw a flaming table in WWE. As I mentioned, that was WrestleMania 22. We're in WrestleMania 30 now, so it's been a long time. So that was shocking. I did not expect that. And, uh, you know, uh, Kane went into the ring. He wanted to choke slam Brian onto the flaming table, but Brian countered and he kicked Kane. And as Kane was holding onto the ropes, Brian kind of launched the ropes and it kind of uh, you know bounced Kane off of the apron through the flaming table. So that was a, a big shock. Of course, then the of course the men with the fire extinguishers were trying to put the, the fire out because the fire was still burning even when Kane went through the, the table. So it, it was a, a shocking moment to say the least. And of course, Kane went running back in the ring, and he he looked like he was in so much pain after he went through that flaming table. And Daniel Bryan immediately hit him with his flying knee, and he scored the pinfall and Brian retained the WWE World Championship in, in a match that it, it was a great match. Like I said, I take nothing away from, from their match and what they did, but, uh, you know, it was, it was really awesome. Like I said, Evolution of Shield might have sold the show, but Daniel Bryan didn't, uh, he didn't, you know, look bad or anything. It was a great match. It really was, and it's, like I said, it surprised me. They went all out. Flaming tables, forklifts, you name it, they went all out and they delivered a hell of a main event. And I'm happy to say that Daniel Bryan retained the championship in his first title defense at his first pay-per-view main event. So that was really cool. Very cool for Daniel Bryan. They even did a post-show in which they had sort of like you see with, you know, uh, basketball or football or, you know, whatever. And they have these baseball. press conferences. Yeah, baseball, hockey. They all do these kind of post-press conferences afterwards. And, on the and they were placed in the, uh, like, uh, they're not, they're like in the old Nitro set. Like how Nitro <laughs> used to be in the middle of the audience. They're not, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, that's, uh, I kind of I like that. I kind of like the fact that yeah. the, uh, the backstage crew guys who do those, uh, those pre-shows and post-shows, they're kind of, you know, 
sometimes when you watch the pre-show or the post-show, depending on what's going on, sometimes they try to hide what you're seeing on the post-show because they want it just for, to be for the audience at the arena, so maybe they put a curtain up. But uh, I like the fact that you kind of have this announce table and you have Josh Matthews, you have Alex Riley, Booker T, and maybe you have one of the modern-day superstars or one of the legends filling in. And uh, they're just, you know, discussing what's happening. And they're right there with the fans. You can literally see the fans, you know, sitting behind them. So it's pretty cool. You know, I, I like that. It's kind of like a throwback to the old days when, uh, you know, you used to see, you know, Tony Schiavone and, you know, Mike Tanay and, and WCW, <laughs> Scott Hudson, you know, when they were right there. Yeah. With the, yeah. Mike Tanay, right. You know, uh, the, uh, I did catch this match, and Bray Wyatt, I'll tell you, I think he has, I think they're pushing him to a uh, uh, world uh, heavyweight championship because he looked, you know, with that kid angle, it was really oh, yeah. surreal. It was wonderful. I thought he needed to win the match to solidify himself as a contender and a, and a player in this business. And he did that by defeating John Cena with the help of the kid, whoever that yeah. kid is. Maybe you know. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of that, it 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 looks he's he's very believable. He's very noticeable now. Uh, I gotta admit, I really didn't know much about him. But now, if you're watching the WWE, you know the man by the name of Bray Wyatt. He's a force to be reckoned with. What's your thoughts on that match? Oh, absolutely, King. I agree with you 100%. Uh, you know, Bray Wyatt, you know, has been slowly climbing the ranks of the WWE for the past, you know, maybe six to the seven months. And we've kind of seen him and his mumbo-jumbo, and lots of times, you know, I even joke about how I don't always understand his promos, but there's something about the way he delivers them that it's so captivating and so fascinating. You know, he really grabs your attention in a way that, you know, a lot of superstars I would compare it to is maybe Raven and ECW or Jake the Snake Roberts, guys who are very small mm-hmm. speakers and could really captivate you and look into, your, look into the camera and you were just fascinated by whatever they were saying. And, you know, even uh, Mankind, when Mick Foley was Mankind and he used to talk in, like, riddles and, you know, things like that, and he used to, you know, you know back in the Attitude Era, Bray Wyatt is kind of like that next generation, that the new school of those kind of sort of demented, crazy, whacked-out characters. And he really is so interesting when he's delivering a promo, but his matches are getting better and better. And what a big win for Bray Wyatt. I mean, he's just defeated the face of the company. I know Daniel Bryan's the champion, but regardless who's the champion or not, you have to face the fact that John Cena is their guy. John Cena is the guy the WWE protects the most. They really care about his image and his relationship with the fans. The fact that he's been a face for nearly 10 years He's been in the company for 12 years, and the minute he became a good guy, they just won't even touch him. They won't let him even go back to being a bad guy because he has such a relationship with the fans. He does so well selling merchandise. He's very kid-friendly. When you see him at the arena, you know, the, the adult males will chant, Cena sucks, but then all the kids will chant, let's go Cena. The kids love this guy. At least they did. 
and now you have Bray Wyatt coming into the mix. And you have Bray Wyatt who's kind of tearing away at John Cena and the fact that he's not this, you know, family-oriented, house-friendly guy. He's really a monster, like just like Bray Wyatt. And he's kind of chipping away at the foundation of John Cena. And at the time, I didn't understand why they were saying that, oh, Bray Wyatt is going to destroy John Cena's legacy at WrestleMania. And at the time, I didn't understand it because I didn't see it that way. But now they're starting to tell the proper story, and they're doing it the right way. And he really is kind of chipping away. He's trying to break John Cena. You know, as they said, Bray didn't want to win at WrestleMania. He wanted to break Cena. And even though it came close, Cena still got the win and prevailed. But now you fast forward to this month, an Extreme Rules pay-per-view, and they're locked up in a steel cage. The Wyatt family members are outside the ring, Luke Harper, Eric Rowan, and you have Bray Cena in the ring, trading blows and forth. And uh, it was just a really uh, a physical match. You saw Bray do that creepy uh, upside-down exorcist sort of like crab walk. And he walked that way to the, the door of the cage. It was just, you know, so bizarre every time he does that. But then you hear the fans, the fans who are, are cheering and singing that song. He's got the whole world in his hands. And, you know, the week before on Monday Night Raw where the fans voted against John Cena, the WWE Universe that, you know, even though it's a split reaction most of the time, they love the guy. They, the kids love the guy. They're always on his side. And yet, on that one occasion, they voted against John Cena. And John Cena came out, and he was very upset. He goes, why did you turn on me like that? You know, I've, I've gone giving my life to you guys. I do everything for you guys, and you put me in a handicap match. And, you know, then we saw that uh, choir of kids coming out and singing and singing the whole world in his hands, and it was just so weird and creepy. And then at the pay-per-view, you saw, you know, uh, Cena get very close to escaping the cage, but even though it was a cage match, even though it was designed to keep the Wyatt family members out of the cage, you still saw them interfere constantly. Uh, you know, every time Cena would climb over the cage and try to touch down on the floor, you saw Eric Rowan climb the cage and basically put Cena on his shoulders, and he would climb the cage with Cena on his shoulders, and he would toss Cena back into the cage with Bray Wyatt. And then you would see Cena try to escape through the, the, the door of the cage. And then you saw Luke Harper, you know, he was standing by the door trying to keep Cena out, you know, closing the door, or he would grab a folding chair and whack the cage. You saw at one point even Bray Wyatt push Cena against the cage, and he ordered Eric Rowan to just launch himself full force, full speed, into the cage. Eric Rowan ran just straight into the cage just so that he could squash Cena who Bray was holding on the inside of the cage. I mean, that was insane. The fact that he would intentionally harm himself just to harm Cena. I mean, it was just great stuff and the end of the match was very was, was huge because it looked like Cena was going to win. Cena had Bray and Luke Harper and Eric Rowan all sort of down for the count and yet as Cena was about to escape the cage through the door you know, the lights went out, and then all of a sudden there was this little kid, one of the little kids from maybe the choir. Well, actually, I heard 
they talked about it on Monday Night Raw the next night. They called this little kid Little Johnny. And I don't know if that was in reference to being like John Cena or just like just, you know, a random name, you know, John, whatever. And so they called the kid Little Johnny. And Little Johnny was singing, you know, he's got the whole world in his hands. But he did it. And his voice was sort of altered. So instead of sounding like a cute little kid, he sounded like some Darth Vader demon or something. He had this bizarre kind of robotic voice, you know, and it it frightened Cena to the point where Cena was literally steps away from winning the match. All he had to do was put his feet on the floor. He would have won. He actually kind of took a step back, and he went back into the ring, Bray Wyatt took advantage. He nailed him with his finishing move called Sister Abigail, and Bray Wyatt defeated the invincible John Cena. It was a huge moment for Bray Wyatt's career, and it's definitely not the end of this feud. I think this feud is, uh, I think it's just getting started. Despite the fact we've already seen two months and uh, two matches between these guys, it's not over yet. I expect to see Bray and Cena continue to clash and to continue to see Bray try to wear out Cena and to break his spirits. Uh, absolutely. But what about what I was talking about before? Can you see Bray with the world title? You know, I think it's definitely something that's going to happen. I don't know when, but when you look at the roster, Peels, Who's your top bad guys in the WWE right now? Maybe Evolution, but at the same token, you have Batista, who's going to be going off to do his movie and to promote it, which I think comes out in August, Guardians of the Galaxy. So Batista won't always be here. In fact, I even heard rumors that Batista wanted out. Batista wanted to leave the WWE early so that he could start really? the movie and uh, that actually kind of frightened a lot of people. A lot of people in the WWE, they were expecting Batista to stay until the next pay-per-view, which is uh, Payback, which is in June. And you know, Batista the, was saying, well... Is that, is that the first time WWE is having a pay-per-view by the name Payback? Because I don't remember no. that name. Oh, no, I do. Because last year, right here... In Chicago, they did the first ever. Yeah, they did the first ever payback pay per view. It was right here in Chicago in 2013, and they are continuing that tradition this year in 2014, having their second annual payback pay per view. And guess what? It's back in Chicago. So this is the second year in a row payback is in Chicago. Wow. That should be interesting, and uh, yeah, there's really no, no uh, theme. There's no uh, extreme matches. It's just a regular pay-per-view. Right? Yeah, but uh, actually, to, to go back to your point, as I mentioned, Batista might be leaving. Uh, I think they're maybe working something out where they can on the WWE, from what I understand. But uh, besides Batista, you have Triple H, who's the boss. I mean, he's focused on day-in-day and operations at the WWE. He's focused on NXT. So I don't see him really doing a whole lot uh, with Daniel Bryan. And then you look at uh, Randy Orton. Randy Orton has already had a series of matches against Daniel Bryan. I don't think anyone wants to see them again. 
So now you look at who's left. There's really nobody left to feud with Daniel Bryan besides Kane. So Bray Wyatt is the perfect choice. Plus, if you remember last year, uh, Bray and Daniel Bryan actually have a history. You know, Bray was trying to corrupt Daniel Bryan. He tried to make him join the Wyatt family. So there's a history between Bray Wyatt and Daniel Bryan. So I think Bray Wyatt is the perfect choice to have a, uh, you know, the next big feud with Daniel Bryan for the title. And, you know, Bray might be the one to take the title off Bryan. Who knows? Absolutely. Okay, what else did we have on Sunday's pay-per-view? Well, you bring up yet before the Intercontinental Championship match, the WWE had that big tournament, and oh, uh, yeah, the, right. they had, this was basically Wade Barrett who won the tournament. He defeated uh, Rob Van Dam. He defeated some other guys to make it to the pay-per-view to face the Intercontinental Champion Big E Langston. And, uh, you know, as you pointed out, despite the fact that the pay-per-view was called Extreme Rules, you would assume that maybe every match had a unique uh, stipulation, and they, they didn't really have that, you know. You had, of course, Daniel Bryan and Kane with the no disqualifications in the Flaming Table, which was awesome. You had a Divas match that was just a regular one-on-one match. You had Cena and Bray Wyatt in a cage match. You had Evolution and Shield in a pretty much, I don't know what that, if that match was another no disqualifications match because it didn't have a Pacific, it wasn't really extreme rules, I don't think, but uh, they did let pretty much anything go. Uh, and then you, the Intercontinental match was one-on-one. The Handicap match was just two-on-one. They didn't really, you know, do anything extreme. They didn't really use any weapons. You had the triple threat match, which was a triple threat match. Of course, there's no disqualifications just to begin with. So, uh, you know, RVD, I think at one point used the trash can. But other than that, you know, there wasn't really a really noteworthy uh, Extreme Rules match, except for the pre-show, which, you know, I'll definitely probably talk about next, between El Torito and Hornswoggle. But the Intercontinental Championship match was uh, it was pretty good. Uh, Wade Barrett definitely seemed to have found the right character in the WWE, as I mentioned before, he's a three-time Intercontinental Champion, and I don't think anyone remembers a single one of those title reigns just because there was just nothing really important going on with the title. The title felt like a throwaway. It didn't feel important. You know, a lot of the matches that were happening weren't really, you know, memorable. So despite the fact he's a three-time Intercontinental Champion, that should mean something. Unfortunately, in my opinion, I don't think it does. But maybe that will change now that he has discovered this bad news Barrett. And he has his character. The fans seem to be into it. You know, they love when he comes out and he goes, I got some bad news for you. You know, they, they seem to be into it. And uh, one thing that was very cool during this match was Wade Barrett paid tribute to Cactus Jack. And at one point, uh, Big E was on the floor and uh, Wade was on the ring apron and he kind of took his, his hands, and he did the, the gun salute, and then he went bang, bang, and he delivered an elbow <laughs> drop off the apron to the floor. And to a lot of people, maybe that might not seem like a big deal, but to longtime wrestling fans, especially Mick Foley fans, they know the first guy to ever deliver an elbow drop off the apron to the floor was the hardcore uh, legend himself, Mick Foley, 
how many times he would deliver that Cactus Jack signature elbow drop when he was in the Independence, when he was in WCW, when he was in ECW, and even when he came to the WWE, he did that signature move. And uh, it's probably one of the reasons why Mick Foley doesn't move as good as he used to because of delivering all those elbow drops to the floor. You know, that, that's got to hurt. But uh, Wade Barrett, that was very cool. He paid tribute to uh, Cactus Jack. And Mick Foley went to Facebook, and he said, you know, I'm surprised the announcers didn't say anything. They didn't make a, um, a reference to that being a Cactus Jack move or whatever. And unfortunately, what a lot of fans may or may not know, but you know, Mick Foley, his Legends contract, it ran out. And he did not re-sign. Mick Foley did not re-sign with the WWE. So uh, I have to assume, right. as you know, I hate to he assume. Gets, because when you, a three years Yeah, I mean, when you assume, you know, you, you kind of make an ass of yourself. But I have to assume that because Mick Foley did not sign or re-sign his Legends contract, I think the WWE just doesn't want to promote him, promote him publicly. So despite the fact Wade Barrett did these Cactus Jack elbow drops, the announcements were quiet. They didn't say a word. So that's, uh, that's unfortunate, you know. I mean, come on, it's pretty obvious that all the fans, I think it, Cactus Jack was even trending on Twitter. So everybody knew that was a tribute to Cactus Jack to Mick Foley, but the WWE, you know, they didn't want to acknowledge it because, you know, Mick Foley's not a WWE guy right now. He didn't resign. But anyways... There was even another moment where Big E did a spear to Wade Barrett. Wade Barrett was on the ring ropes, and Big E did a, a spear, and he speared uh, Wade off the ropes onto the floor. As I said, that was kind of reminiscent to when Edge speared Mick Foley through the ring ropes onto the flaming table at WrestleMania. So I thought even though this wasn't an extreme you know, match, they definitely were inspired by Mick Foley, and they tried to put in – some sort of hardcore elements, even though they didn't use any chairs or kendo sticks or tables. It seems like they were they were really trying to do something special in this match. So I do give a lot of credit to Wade Barrett and Biggie Langston for just putting that extra effort in to make the match special. And, you know, there was a new champion. Bad News Barrett defeated Big E. He is the new Intercontinental Champion. And I hope this is a memorable title run for Wade Barrett, and I hope that it brings some uh, prestige back to the title. So it should be interesting to see where it goes from here. Absolutely. And uh, what was your uh, take on uh, Monday Night Raw? Well, before we get to Raw, there's still some uh, more matches from Extreme Rules. Uh, I was talking about the pre-show in El Torito versus Hornswoggle. I immediately thought this was going to be a joke and that it was just going to be ridiculous. And in a lot of ways it was. (laughs) It was called a WLC match, which basically is kind of a a rip-off of the TLC, except instead of, you know, normal-sized tables and chairs and ladders, they had, you know, a stepladder, they had a miniature table, they had small chairs. But to my surprise, and I can't believe I'm saying this, it was probably one of the more entertaining matches that night. It, it really was a lot of fun. You know, they, they, 
they did their best to make it entertaining. And you had uh, Los Matadors were ringside, and they actually got in, you know, the normal size uh, ladders and tables, and they kind of set them up ringside. And then uh, you have 3MB with Hornswoggle, as I said. And, you know, you have El Torito, who's he's pretty good. You know, he does some some nice little luchador moves. He does his Hurricane Rana. He'll try to do a springboard off the ropes. And they were, you know, they put on a pretty fun match. And they used, the, you know, the tables. And you saw, you know, Hornswoggle go through the miniature table. You saw, you know, El Torito doing suicide dives outside the ring and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And you even saw Hornswoggle try to do a, you know, he was putting people through, you know, the normal size tables. He was, he did a move. I don't know if it was, uh, I think 3MB ran into the ring, and I don't know if they picked up Hornswoggle. And, of course, El Torito and uh, the Los Matadors were, I think, outside the ring, and they had these tables set up, and they kind of threw Hornswoggle to Los Matadors, and Los Matadors went crashing through the normal size table. So, in a very weird and strange way, they really tried to make that a legitimate extreme match. They had tables, even though some of them were miniature. They did have some normal-sized tables. They had ladders. They had step ladders, and they really tried to make this match, you know, something more than just a joke. Yeah, it was, you know, silly at times and entertaining, but in a really weird way, I really enjoyed that match, and I thought that match even though it was on the pre-show, it should have been on the pay-per-view. And I said before, they should have put Alexander Rusev, who was in the handicap match, on the pre-show. Because to me, his match was, you know, just a waste of time. I didn't really, I wasn't into it. I didn't really care what was going on. And, you know, like I said, his valet, Lana, at this point is more over than he is, which is not good if you're Rusev. No, no. (laughs) You know, you know, at the same time, he's still new to the WWE. You know, I saw him in NXT very briefly before he made the jump to WWE. But you know, he's a very talented guy. There's no denying that. You know, he, he can do some pretty cool stuff for a, a guy his size. He can wrestle. But he's just, for some reason, I don't know if the fans haven't made that connection yet or they're just, they're just sick of seeing another guy go through squash matches how many times you saw Ryback for almost a year squash people? Oh, boy. I think fans are just kind of tired of that kind of match. They want to see quality wrestling. And unfortunately right now you're not going to get that with Rusev because they're trying to build him as this indestructible monster. But by doing that, they're, I think they're hurting him more than they're helping him. But as I said, the uh, WLC match, I really enjoyed it. I would say anyone who thought you know, El Torito and Hornswoggle are a joke. I, I kind of agree. I don't always enjoy when they kind of put their matches on Raw and stuff, but I really thought for once they delivered. And if, if anyone didn't see that pre-show match, I would say watch it. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Uh, that's one of the – it's a free show, so obviously it's on YouTube. It's on whatever, any device you could right. find it. Watch it. You might be entertained. Yeah, I'm telling you, it was it was surprising. They even had – a, which, again, which just goes to show you this is WWE in typical fashion. Of course, we have Jerry Lawler, Michael Cole, JBL, who are the announcers. But instead of them calling the match, they basically had three midgets ringside who were dressed like JBL, who were dressed like Michael Cole, and who were dressed like Jerry Lawler. 
that was when I think it got a little ridiculous because, you know, they were doing, you know, your typical, you know, little puns and saying, oh, this is the biggest match of all time with the biggest superstars and, you know, all that goofy stuff. I mean, typical WWE. But uh, the match itself I thought was highly entertaining, so I would recommend people see that. The first match of the, the night on the pay-per-view was the triple threat match, Rob Van Dam, Jack Swagger, Cesaro. And going into this match, I thought it was just going to be a typical triple threat match. But to my surprise, when I watched the pre-show, they said this was going to be an elimination triple threat match. And that I really liked because that was something we saw in the early days of ECW. They didn't really have triple threat matches, one fall to a finish. They always had those elimination-style matches, and I love those right. elimination-style matches. I think you get really great quality wrestling. Because on the one hand, you get that sort of chaoticness of the triple threat, and there's all these people in the match, but then eventually you narrow it down to a one-on-one match, which usually ends up as a classic. You know, in ECW, how many times did you see, you know, Little Guido, Jerry Lynn, and Tajiri, or Super Crazy, or Psychosis, or Rob Van Dam in these matches, and they always wound up to being so, you know, memorable and just really great. So I really thought that was cool. I thought that was a nice maybe nod to Paul Heyman, who Paul Heyman kicked off the show, and he said that for once, the WWE gets it right, one night a year when they go extreme and they pay tribute to the tribe of extreme and to let everyone know, and at this point, now Heyman pretty much went into business for himself, and he said to let everyone know that my client, Brock Lesnar, conquered the streak. So at one point he was talking about, you know, WWE, and he was kind of giving it to them and about how they finally are going extreme and, you know, paying tribute to the guys of ECW. But then just to switch it up, he, of course, talks about Brock Lesnar conquering the streak, which if you follow Heyman on Facebook or Twitter, that's all he posts about. All he posts about is my client, Brock Lesnar, conquered the streak. So it's it's pretty funny. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we have that. Uh, did we cover everything on the pay-per-view, or is there still more? Well, in the, the triple threat match, uh, Jack Swagger was the first eliminated. He was eliminated right. by a, a five-star frog splash by Rob Van Dam. And at that point, like I said, I thought the match was over, but I forgot, oh, it's an elimination style, so the match is going to continue. Even I think the audience went silent because they were saying, is the match over? What just happened? Because this was a last-minute thing because when the match was uh, announced, it wasn't announced as an elimination-style match. It was just announced as triple threat. So I think the fans were a little surprised at the arena. But... Like I said, uh, eventually came down to Rob Van Dam and Cesaro. And Cesaro is just such a freak of nature. I mean, we've seen Eddie Guerrero do the Three Amigos, which is the, you know, the the suplex that he kind of holds on to and he swings and he does, you know, three suplexes. We've seen Kurt Angle, uh, Chris Benoit do the rolling German suplexes in which they do a German suplex, but keep the uh, their grip, and then they roll into another German suplex. Tonight, or on that pay-per-view, we saw Cesaro do a rolling 
gut wrench suplex in which he would do his gut wrench suplex, drop the person on the, the mat, but then he would roll over, pick them up, deadlift them off the mat, and continue to do it two more times, which, I mean, that has got to take a lot of power. So Cesaro, like I said, always impressive, and he did get the win, and he did beat Rod Van Dam. Uh, it was a, a really good match, and I think uh, <clears throat> the feud between Cesaro and Rob Van Dam will continue uh, that payback at uh, the next pay-per-view. Because I think uh, Cesaro and Rob Van Dam, I think they definitely have uh, something special there, and I think they'll put on some really great matches in the future. But another match on the pay-per-view was the Divas Championship match. Uh, this match might be overlooked just because it came right after John Cena-Bray Wyatt match. And it, it was hard to follow nope. Cena and Wyatt. So a lot of people were kind of already kind of tired, and they were saving their energy for the main event between Brian and Kane. Tamina challenging Paige for the relaxation match. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But, uh, you know, I thought <laughs> these girls, they uh, you know, they did their best. They put on... You know, a good showing. You know, Paige is still new, so there's that factor, too, where there's a large audience of people who, if they don't have the network, and if they weren't watching NXT, they don't know who this girl is. So why would they get behind her? Whereas, at least to me, though, you've been watching for the the past, you know, several years. But, um, you know, I thought they did their best to make the match, you know, you know, good for what it was. Like you said, it was just kind of a moment for the fans to collect themselves. But, uh, you know, Paige, she's she's pretty impressive. She has that uh, scorpion cross submission, which is something I've never seen before. So I definitely give her props uh, on that. It's a, it's a pretty cool submission move. So Paige retained the Divas Championship, which I'm sure surprised a lot of people. They thought Tamina was just going to roll over her and take that title off her. But uh, like I said last week on King Jordan Radio, I definitely see Paige holding on to that title, and she did. But uh, yeah, as I said did. before, uh, the match that stole the show, Shield Evolution, wow. Seth Rollins was a maniac. He, Seth Rollins, Dean Ambrose, Roman Reigns, they all definitely went above and beyond. The fans were chanting, this is awesome, throughout you know the entire match. There was one point where Dean Ambrose was running on the announce tables and he dove into the crowd because uh, Triple H was in the crowd with Randy Orton. And, you know, like I said, Dean Ambrose went on the announce tables and uh, he ran o- over both tables, the Spanish announce table, the, the, the one with you know, Lawler and Cole and JBL, and he dove into the crowd. Also, as they were continued fighting into the crowd and they got closer and closer to the back, you know, Ambrose was getting beaten up by Triple H and Orton. They were double-teaming him. And then all of a sudden the camera kind of pans out. And I'm thinking, well, what's going on here? And sure enough, to my surprise, Seth Rollins, this maniac, was on top of the balcony while Dean Ambrose and Triple H and Orton were on the floor Rollins was up on the balcony, and he dove off the balcony, did a flying crossbody, taking out even Dean Ambrose, his own partner, and Triple H and Randy Orton. I mean, that was just, uh, I haven't seen something like that, like I said, since the days of maybe Jeff Hardy 
in the, the Attitude Era or Rob Van Dam in ECW or Super Crazy in ECW, guys who were just, you know, death-defying, jumping off balconies, doing crazy moves. And we saw Seth Rollins continue that tradition uh, at the Extreme Rules pay-per-view. Seeing him jump off the balcony was just – it was something I'll never forget. It was definitely something they even showed highlights of on Raw the next night. I mean, it was awesome. Like I said, these guys were great. Uh, we saw the week before, you know, Ric Flair basically endorsed the Shield. Instead of his own comrades in Evolution, he endorsed the Shield, and he walked away. The Shield carried the fight against Evolution, and they beat Evolution. The young dogs uh, of justice, the hounds of justice, the Shield, came up with a huge victory, uh, beating Evolution, proving they are the most dominant faction in the WWE today, which, uh, like I said, that was by far the match of the night. Uh, it was just really awesome. They went all out. Absolutely. All right, I found the clip that I wanted to play. Of course, we were speaking earlier of the Ultimate Warrior. Now, Chris Jericho on his blog uh, talk show uh, on podcast. Uh, he had some wonderful things to play about Warrior, and I wanted the listeners, and uh, I want you to hear this, and we'll talk about it on the other side. Here is Chris Jericho on his thoughts on the Ultimate Warrior. Tuesday night, I found out via a text that Ultimate Warrior had passed away. Uh, just crushing, obviously so shocking for me as it was to so many others. Um, basically, after 18 years, Ultimate Warrior and Vince McMahon buried the hatchet. They uh, uh, made amends and agreed to have Warrior appear at the Hall of Fame. He did appear at the Hall of Fame. He was the headliner of the 2014 class of the WWE Hall of Fame. And at that Hall of Fame, he did a big, long 40-minute speech, kind of rambling all over the place, but basically being the warrior and, and said, you know, how much he, he was vindicated and, and how much, how happy he was to be back in the WWE. Because if you remember about 10 years ago, there was a DVD that was released called The Self-Destruction of the Ultimate Warrior. And they had a lot of us. I remember I made a lot of comments, and some of them were kind of derogatory towards the warrior uh, on, on behalf of, you know, the orders that were given. Like, you know, we don't want to talk nice about this guy. So they had so many problems with the Warrior, they actually released a DVD completely burying him. And Warrior was very happy that after all these years, he was finally able to come back and, like I said, get vindicated for all these. I'm sure there was some reasons for it, but whatever the real issues were between him and Vince were, were hammered out and, and buried. And Warrior announced that he had a multi-year deal as an ambassador for the WWE. He looked great. He was sounding great. He was giving... Uh, huge love to his wife and, and daughters in the front row that were, I think, 11 years old and 8 years old. And then the next night at WrestleMania, he comes out in a suit looking very dapper once again, gets announced at the Superdome. Everyone's cheering, going nuts for the Warrior. And then on Raw, after 18 years, the first time in 18 years, he comes out on Raw and cuts a promo, starts out in his suit, then puts on one of those Warrior duster jackets and puts on an Ultimate Warrior mask with the makeup and does a Warrior promo and announces that you know, he's excited to be back, and all the fans are really the ones that are responsible for the Ultimate Warrior's uh, uh, rise and, and for the Ultimate Warrior's, you know, legacy. And then he says some real chilling things. He talked about uh, guys, uh, a man breathing his last breath, and his 
a man's heart beating its last beat. I mean, that's just chilling. That was his last speech he ever gave on Raw, 18 years after being gone. I mean, like it's it's almost like something you'd see in a movie. You know, guy has problems, buries the hatchet, comes back, Hall of Fame, WrestleMania, speech on Raw, and then passes away the next day. I mean, I feel so bad for his family, his wife, her name is Dana, their daughters, young daughters, I think they're 11 years old and, and 8 years old, going from the greatest weekend of their father's life in a lot of ways to the next day passing away. I mean, he died a happy man, which is the goal for all of us. But what a what a tragic story. I mean, my goodness. I just couldn't believe it. And, you know, you hear the warrior talking, and for anybody that grew up when I did in the, in the 80s, I mean, the late 80s when I was a huge wrestling fan, the warrior was the guy. Like, I was a Hogan guy and a Steamboat guy, but then suddenly warrior comes out, and he's just massive. Remember how, how jacked he was, how much charisma he had, how much intensity and energy. He had long hair. He looked like a like a heavy metal dude, which I was. His music was heavy. You heard a little snippet of it. And then he'd run out from the back and jump in the ring and hit the ropes back and forth and shake the ropes with this intensity. He would blow himself up by the time he the match started, but that was that was half of, of his appeal. You didn't need the Ultimate Warrior to be a great worker. You just needed him to have that entrance. I mean, that was the best thing. I remember I saw him live in Winnipeg. He did the entrance. He came in the ring. He shook the ropes, ran back and forth. Andre the Giant, he beat him in, in a minute. Uh, I think it was like 30 seconds, actually. Andre was in there. He hit the ropes a couple times, jumped, gave him a big tackle, splashed him, pinned him one, two, three, and then ran right out of the ring. And I was like, I can't believe that. Like, first of all, like, that was the main event. Like, like What? And two, oh my gosh, he beat Andre the Giant in 30 seconds. He's the ultimate warrior. And he had such an appeal to everybody. Guys like Miz loved the ultimate warrior, and Ziggler, and Steve Austin, and Triple H. Uh, Zach Wild, huge ultimate warrior fan. We used to talk about the ultimate warrior all the time. I mean, I was talking to Zach about the ultimate warrior and to Triple H about the ultimate warrior earlier in the day on Tuesday, just how awesome it was to see him back and how cool it was. You know, there's a great picture that Stephanie posted on the Twitter of Vince and Ultimate Warrior in a big hug backstage before Raw. It's just such a such a, a tragic story. Um, you know, I think everybody's shocked. Like, you just can't believe it. I mean, it'd be different if you hadn't seen him for a while or somebody. He had just gotten back into the groove, gotten back into the spotlight, and you know, I mean, it's just it's just horrible. And I my I only met Warrior once. This was back in about '97, '98 in WCW. Now, Hogan beat Warrior uh, uh, during this little feud that they had. It was just a mini-feud because the rumor was that at WrestleMania six, which is still one of the best matches of all time, if you haven't seen it, go watch it, Ultimate Warrior versus Hulk Hogan. It was championship versus championship, and it's when Warrior beat Hogan and passed the torch, so to speak. And Warrior, at that point, there was two great matches that Warrior was involved in. That was one of them. The other one was the WrestleMania, maybe the year after or a couple years after, versus uh, Randy Savage. That was another amazing match. I think that was the retirement match for Savage, quote-unquote. So then the rumor was that Hogan brought Warrior in because he wanted to get his, his win back in WCW. And they had this ridiculously, it was just a horrible uh, feud. I remember, remember that Warrior came in from the trap door into the ring, and they never told any of us, any of the wrestlers, that there was a trap door. Disco Inferno hurt himself on that trap door. Davey Boy Smith got a really bad injury from, from falling on that trap door. Uh, it's the famous promo where Hogan's looking in the mirror and he sees Ultimate Warrior behind him in the mirror and turns around and he's not there and it's like, you know, how do you see something in the mirror and 
you know, only you can see it, but we can all see it too. It was just really dumb. But anyways, the point being, I met the Warrior, and two things stand out. One, I went and said hi to him, obviously, as a, as a huge Ultimate Warrior fan growing up as a teenager. And he said, oh, oh, Chris Jericho, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of your work. You're doing a great job. And I, was, I couldn't believe it. Like, me? You're talking to me? Because I was a nobody at the time. It was back when I was in WCW. I might have just turned heel, or I might not even. Like, either way, I was not one of the upper echelon guys. And no top guys would ever really acknowledge my existence. But Warrior was really sweet. I mean, much like when I met Axel Rose, you always hear these horror stories about these guys. Yet, with Axel and Warrior, they were nothing but the best. And I'll never forget him giving me that compliment. Because for me at that time, that meant a lot that he said that to me. And then I remember watching him in catering. And he ate very clean, you know, very clean foods. And he, when he was done, he went and grabbed a chocolate chip cookie and he crumpled it up into his hand. And then he took a big smell of it. And then he threw it away. And I was like, what is he doing? Like, what is that? And I asked somebody, it might have been Nash or Hall, like, what is he doing? He's like, well, that's how he has dessert. He smells the cookie, which gives him the same sensation as eating it. And then he throws it away. So he's not getting any of the calories or the fat or the sugars, but he's getting the same sensation. Just like, all right, whatever. He was born James Helwig and then changed his name to The Warrior. That's actually what it said on his birth certificate and, and, and driver's license. And it'll say that on his death certificate, Warrior. So, um, you know, we heard sporadic appearances from him over time. And like I said, you know, he was such a legendary character that just basically disappeared after a while and finally had just come back, uh, and then now has passed away. So RIP to the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, do me a favor. Go onto the WWE Network or go on YouTube and, and watch some, some Ultimate Warrior interviews. They were out there, psychedelic, completely un- unintelligible sometimes. Didn't make sense, but they were always cool. And we'll always remember the intensity of the Ultimate Warrior, the amazing, amazing matches he had. We're talking four-and-a-half, five-star matches against Hulk Hogan, and Randy Macho Man Savage, and then, of course, for me, for Chris Jericho, I'll always remember the, that five minutes that I spent with him and the kind words he gave me that let me know that even though nobody was giving me any, I guess, respect in WCW from the upper echelon, that, that one of my favorites and one of my favorite characters of all time and one of the greatest of all time as far as captivating the audience had given me a, a small, slight thumbs up and it meant a lot to me, and it, and it always has. And, and I kind of wish that I would have went to the Hall of Fame and would have been able to tell them that in person. So we're going to miss you, Warrior. There will never be another one like you. Rest in peace. What a beautiful tribute. You're so exchanging. Oh, yeah, that was uh, <clears throat> very cool by Chris Jericho. I never heard that story, so that was, you know, it was uh, pretty cool to hear that even when he was in WCW at a time where he was really struggling in uh, WCW and he wasn't getting any respect from any of the really guys there, especially the top-tier guys. You know, we, all, we often uh, heard stories of him and uh, Bill Goldberg. Uh, for Ultimate Warrior, who just kind of came back and to say, hey, you know, you're doing a pretty good job, you know, keep it up. And that, that's like, oh, wow, he, he actually noticed me. He actually thinks I'm doing good. And, you know, coming from a guy who, like I said, you know, we all grew up watching him. You know, even guys like Chris Jericho, a lot of the young guys today, uh, you know, anyone who was around in the 80s, if you were watching wrestling and you were just a fan at the time, 
Now you look at Chris Jericho, who became a wrestler, and now he is wrestling. And to have you know one of your peers to come and say, especially someone you looked up to, and say you're doing a good job, you know, that meant a lot to Chris Jericho. So that just goes to show you the kind of person that Warrior was. You know, he didn't really have an ego. He didn't. Uh, you know, if he had a problem with somebody, there was a reason for it. You know, he wasn't uh, a bad guy. You know, he was a good guy. And uh, as Jericho pointed out, you know, he was a big uh, heavy metal fan, and he loved that, that entrance song and the, the ring music and his intensity and him rushing down to the ring. And, you know, it was just something that at the time it was so cool, it was so different. You never really saw anything like that before or even to this day. You know, nobody uh, compares to the Ultimate Warrior. And, you know, whether – and I, I mentioned this with Bray Wyatt. He's a guy who – I don't know what the hell he's saying in his promos half the time, but I'm always so captivated by Bray Wyatt's promos. And that's the same with the Ultimate Warrior. You know, you maybe didn't understand what he was saying at the time because he was just kind of going on and on. But damn, was it he, his intensity was something you couldn't take your eyes off of, and he always, you know, captivated an audience. So you know, he's always someone who was a fan favorite. Uh, people enjoyed his character. You know, he, he didn't have to be, you know, uh, you know, like Daniel Bryan. He didn't have to be a Bret Hart or a Shawn Michaels or a Randy Savage or a Ricky Steamboat or a Harley Race. Or He didn't have to be that technically sound because he had the character. He had the charisma. He had everything that you would want in a world champion to represent the company and to stand out and to have all these fans adore him and love him. And, you know, like I said, wrestlers today who were inspired by him became wrestlers because of the Ultimate Warrior. That's the effect that that man had over a generation. So I think that just goes to show you he's definitely one of the greats. And to have, uh, you know, be finally, finally, after so many years of bad blood with the WWE to be honored, and to be shown that respect that he didn't get, you know, 10 years ago when that DVD came out. And as Jericho pointed out, he was in a tough situation because here his bosses are saying, listen, we don't we want to look at this guy in a negative way. We don't want to say anything positive. And, you know, what are you going to do? Your boss is paying you to, you know, do a job. and you, know, you go out and you do it. You know, he felt bad, but, you know, it's the job that was set out for him to do. But, uh, you know, he looked back on it, and, yeah, it was terrible. It was, it was awful, and it really hurt the Ultimate Warrior. But finally, you know, like I said, they made peace, whatever. Finally, you know, Triple H brokered that bridge, and he was included in the video game, and they finally knocked down those walls. And, you know, they kind of finally showed him the respect that he deserved. And with the Hall of Fame, with the new DVD that's out, you know, the new DVD, the Ultimate Warrior Ultimate Collection, in which they tell the right story and they show all the Warriors, you know, greatest matches and, you know, all those great moments and stuff that we, we saw parts of uh, on the WWE Network during Warrior Week. A lot of that footage uh, you can see on the DVD. Of course, that one documentary, no, that documentary is exclusive to the network, so you can only see it on WWE Network. But lots of matches and some of those interviews with some of the stars you could probably see on the, that new DVD that's out. Uh, I haven't seen the new DVD yet, but I've heard people uh, who watched it and said that it was really cool and they really enjoyed it. So 
you know, it uh, it was really it's really nice that you know he was able to end on a high note and to have, like I said before, to you know bury the hatchet with all those guys, and he was in such a good place. Uh, with with wrestling and with Vince McMahon and you know as Jericho pointed out he signed a you know multi you know deal to be an ambassador for the WWE and to go on and to you know do maybe signings to represent WWE and you know other states or even other countries you know just to travel and to you know just do be a good ambassador but uh, unfortunately you know it uh, never happened but uh, it just goes to show you that you know life is short but. Uh, you know, Warrior always, you know, lived to the fullest. He lived to the fullest, and uh, he always believed. He most certainly did, and they did use uh, video edits, uh, clips, I should say, from the DVD on to that uh, new documentary. So both of them uh, you should go out and get. And ironically, Warrior in 96 for Triple H at WrestleMania 12, and uh, I believe that was only a couple-minute match, so that was ironic, too, just to close yeah. the chapter on uh, well, Warrior. Jericho, uh, Jericho said that even Triple H was a fan of the Warrior, because if you look back at Triple H, you know, Triple H, well, when he got into the business, he was a bodybuilder. You know, he was a guy who did the weightlifting, and, you know, he was a wrestling fan. He always wanted to break in. And if you're a bodybuilder and you look at wrestling, you look at the guys who were who had that physique. And Warrior was one of those guys who had that massive physique that, you know, Jericho mentioned. And, you know, Hunter being, you know, a bodybuilder himself, you know, he looked up to him, you know. So uh, it's kind of cool that he had that match with him. The fact that it ended uh, so quick, there might be a lot of reasons behind that. Uh, with Warrior coming back and just to show him looking dominant as, as always. I mean, if he could beat, you know, Andre the Giant in 30 seconds, I think he could beat uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley in about a minute or so. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so it, it, was, it was pretty cool. Though At that time in 96, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on in wrestling. If, if you remember that curtain call in uh, New York, yeah. I think, with uh, Triple H and Nash and uh, Hall, and Shawn Michaels, and, you know, you know, uh, you know, Hall and Nash, they got off scot-free because they were going straight to WCW. Shawn Michaels, who was the right. champion, you're not going to penalize the champion, but Triple H was the fall guy. So basically, I think maybe, maybe that match at WrestleMania was just a little punishment for Triple H to have, you know, taking on one of his idols, the Ultimate Warrior, in a, you know, sort of a squash match that lasted, you know, under a minute. Also, we, we know that he was supposed to be the king of the ring in 96, but instead they gave that honor to Stone Cold Steve Austin, and the birth of Austin's uh, 316 came out of uh, that 96 king of the ring. So in a way, it was a blessing in disguise. Uh, everything that happened, I guess, happens for a reason. <laughs> oh, no doubt. Okay, this next clip is called why the shield got over and the nexus is dead in. Let's take a listen to it, and we'll talk about it on the other side. Daniel writes in, what did WWE do with the shield that they did not do with the nexus? What key factors made them more popular than the nexus? Everything, everything they did. Is, is that, I mean, it, it's just incredible to me to think back to the, uh, the heat that the Nexus had when they first hit the scene, that big angle they did on Raw where they attacked John Cena, they tore up the ring. 
I mean, there were a lot of people who said this is just like the NWO in 96 when they invaded. This is like a modern-day version of the NWO. This is going to be so cool. This is going to be so awesome. And it was for a while. They would come out. They would beat people up, not unlike the Shield. Uh, they would beat up the Legends. Uh, unfortunately, they beat up Ricky Steamboat a little too, uh, a little too much, and uh, <laughs> that was uh, not good. But it was going well for a while. And then came SummerSlam and the big 10-man tag, which John Cena won. And even after the fact, Cena admitted he made a mistake going over in that match. Uh, that was the story that Jericho, uh, or I think it was Edge, told that story on Jericho's podcast. That, that's how John Cena felt after the fact. He realized it was probably a mistake for that match to go that way. And uh, they tried to salvage it. The, the Nexus didn't go away right away. They even had Wade Barrett beat John Cena's singles match. Cena became the Nexus slave. Uh, it was over at that point. It was done. It was finished. They they missed the boat. And uh, with the Shield, the, big, the biggest difference of all is from day one, when the Shield came in, the Shield were booked as serious threats to the roster. They were never beaten. They always, or almost always, had the upper hand. It was a long, long, long time before the Shield lost their first match. And I still remember what that match was. Uh, it was on an episode of SmackDown last maybe May, I don't remember the exact month, but I remember the episode of SmackDown when The Shield lost. It was a six-man tag. I want to say it was against Brian and Orton and maybe Kane. I don't really remember. But they built. They made a big deal about it. The fans were going crazy. The announcers made a point to mention it. You know, if you build something up long enough and you protect guys the way they should be protected and you don't beat them like a drum and you don't make them look like fools, it's amazing how guys can get over. Reigns, Rollins, and Ambrose from day one have been protected. Now, there was a period of time when they first lost. They went on and they lost a little too much, I thought. It was like, okay, now that they lost, we can just beat them every week. And that, that I didn't agree with that. But that aside, for the most part, the Shield has been booked better than any other trio in the history of WWE. The Shield has been booked better than any other new guys that have been brought up to the main roster, I think, at any point in the history of that company. It's unbelievable to me, as many other careers as they've ruined, as many other start-and-stop pushes as guys have had, be it Ziggler or whoever, that these guys have somehow managed to avoid all of that, and they, for the most part, like 95% have been booked perfectly. And look at them now. They're huge stars. They've been around now for a long time, well over a year, year and a half. And these guys are in the same position in that everybody looks at them and knows these are main eventers. These are future main eventers. Roman Reigns is going to be a main eventer. Seth Rollins can be a main eventer. Dean Ambrose can be a main eventer. Nobody's looking at these guys as damaged goods like they did pretty much every member of the Nexus, I think, when that angle was over. And even Barrett. Barrett hasn't quite recovered since then either. Only now is he finally starting to find his footing, and maybe they're finally taking this, this bad news Barrett character in a direction where he might actually get over. And it only took him finally getting in the ring and wrestling for that to happen. How many fucking months did I crow on my podcast? Please, put this guy in the ring. Let him wrestle. Let him do... You know, let, 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 let him show what he's got and kick some ass and maybe he'll actually get over. It wasn't that I hated the, the bad news gimmick. He did it on the JBL and Cole show and was very entertaining with it. It was just that he would come out every single week and he would do comedy, scripted comedy that wasn't fucking funny. And he was not getting in the ring and backing it up and it was just going nowhere. 
Only when they put him in the ring, finally, is he now starting to get over. But for a long time, Wade Barrett was just this lost soul on the main roster, and they did nothing with him. They put the Intercontinental title on him, and it made matters worse. Which is why, if I'm Barrett, I should be a little bit worried if I end up winning this tournament and beating Big E at the pay-per-view, like I think you will. But the point is, they, they protected the Shield. They protected the Shield more than any other guys I can ever remember them promoting up. And you see the end result here. You see what happened to the Nexus. They didn't last very long. And you see the Shield is still around. The Shield is not only still around, but they were clearly building to a breakup of the Shield like by WrestleMania. I have no doubt the plan was to break up the Shield by WrestleMania. But they got over so huge, especially in that feud with the Wyatts, and the fans started turning in their favor, and they became big baby faces, where it just became obvious, why the hell are we going to break these guys up now? Let's just run with this. Let's run with the momentum they have. And, you know, even if it's just another three months, six months, maybe they go another year before they break these guys up. You didn't have that with the Nexus. You had a lot of people shaking their heads. You don't have that with the Shield. That's the difference between protecting guys and not protecting them. Okay, J.J., a very interesting uh, quote there with the uh, Shield. What's your take? Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree uh, 100%. Uh, just the way they've managed the Shield, they've really protected them. They've done the right way since day one, establishing these <clears throat> these new young guys from NXT. And, uh, you know, it's just they've given them an opportunity to be to share the spotlight especially with guys like The Rock, you know, Mr. Hollywood, he's making, you know, about a dozen movies a year, and then The Undertaker, someone who you only see once a year, and yet when The Shield came out, you know, about two years ago, and, you know, maybe a year ago when The Undertaker came back for WrestleMania, and he did do an appearance on Raw, one of the appearances was against The Shield. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget, they actually had Undertaker wrestle, on, uh, I don't know if it was SmackDown or Raw, and he had a one-on-one -on -one match with Dean Ambrose, and they had the Shield triple power bomb The Undertaker. And then, you know, that was their way of writing off The Undertaker, but at the same token, that makes The Shield look so impressive. They're not only beating the top guys on the WWE roster, but they're beating, you know, two of the top guys in WWE history, in The Undertaker and The Rock, and I think they've even tried to you know, take on, you know, other guys and so on and so forth. But, you know, they really protected the Shield and they gave Shield, you know, an amazing opportunity. Plus the thing that's so great about the Shield is there's only three members. It's a lot easier to control three guys as opposed to the Nexus, which I think was uh, maybe about eight. They basically had about eight guys running rampage uh, in the Nexus. You had Wade Barrett, you had uh, David Otunga, you had Ryback. Well, he wasn't called Ryback yeah. at the time. He was called Skip Sheffield. You had uh, Justin Gabriel. You had Darren Young, Heath Slater, a guy by the name of uh, Michael Tarver, who uh, got released shortly after. But uh, even Daniel Bryan, during that initial night when they destroyed uh, Monday Night Raw, when uh, the, end, the first season of NXT ended and Wade Barrett won, and Wade Barrett made his appearance <clears throat> on Monday Night Raw, and believe it or not, I believe it was a match against John Cena and CM Punk. 
John Cena versus CM Punk on Monday Night Raw. It was the main event, and it was 2010, and here comes Wade Barrett. And I don't know if he came through the crowd or somewhere, and then all of a sudden you saw a bunch of other guys. And you saw, like I said, those people I mentioned, uh, you know, Daniel Bryan, Otunga, Young, Slater, Gabriel, Ryback, and, you know, they all surrounding the ring, and they destroyed the place. They destroyed not only John Cena, they destroyed CM Punk. They even, you know, were scaring the, the announcers out of the announce, you know, table. They, they destroyed the announce table. They destroyed, you know, the ring itself. I think they took the ring apart at one point. They took the ring apart. They were just, you know, just going crazy, just beating people up. I think they were, there was even a point where Daniel Bryan uh, strangled uh, Justin Roberts with his own tie. And I think that was one of the cases where they fired Daniel Bryan because it, they went a little too, it, you know, it wasn't PG anymore. He took a, a man and he strangled him by his tie, and a, apparently a lot of the sponsors were upset. And I don't know if the he does he suspended Brian or, or whatnot, but Brian was actually gone from the Nexus for a few months and we wouldn't see Brian until that SummerSlam that they mentioned, in which it was, you know, Team WWE versus, you know, Team Nexus <clears throat> and Daniel Bryan was a part of Team WWE. But uh, as they pointed out, you know, Wade Barrett, the three time Intercontinental champion, you know, he beat the Miz, he beat just that nobody remembers. <clears throat> but now right. he has this character development where he's bad news Barrett. We're getting used to seeing him and speaking. And, you know, it's just one guy. I guess it's a lot easier to get over, you know, one guy or three guys compared to eight. You have eight guys. It's hard to showcase those eight guys. It's just too many people on, on screen at the same time. It's hard to, for the fans to identify with someone. Whereas the Shield, like I said, you have three guys, and the thing about the Shield is there are no leaders. You know, in the Nexus, Wade Barrett was the leader, no doubt about it. Even when the Nexus broke up, Wade Barrett had another group. He had a group called the Core, in which he said, oh, there's no leaders, we're all equal. But it, it, it just didn't matter. Wade Barrett, you still looked at him as the leader. With the Shield... I would have told you uh, maybe two years ago, Dean Ambrose is the leader. You know, a year ago, I would have told you Roman Reigns is the leader. They're pushing Roman Reigns to the sky and, and above. He, you know, his uh, Royal Rumble, his Survivor Series, you know, he was dominating those pay-per-views. <clears throat> but uh, then lately with Seth Rollins, when they, they pointed out we thought the Shield was going to break up, and Seth Rollins had kind of abandoned them. And then he said it was just a way to make the Shield stronger. And then we see kind of Seth Rollins taking the, a leadership role. So they've all kind of passed down that sort of leadership role. So no one's really above the other one. Plus the fact those three guys are so amazing. Like I said, Seth Rollins, he has that kind of kamikaze, suicidal, daredevil, you know, he's He's a huge risk taker. He's very captivating. He's fast. He's just nuts. He's always doing crazy stunts, and he's flying around the ring. You have <clears throat> Dean Ambrose, who's very eccentric and unique, and he's just kind of what he does when he delivers his promos. Even when he's in the ring, he has this new thing now where I don't know if you notice where, like, someone will they'll smack him around, and he'll lean against the ropes, and he'll halfway sort of half of his body will go outside the ring, but then his feet will somehow get tangled in the ropes, 
and it sort of catapults him back into the ring. So he's doing these unique things that make him stand out. He also has, you know, we know the uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin used to do the Luthes press, in which he would hit the ropes, bond to you, and then start wailing you. Dean Ambrose sort of does something similar. It's a little bit different than the Luthes press, but he sort of hits the ropes, and he just starts wailing both of his arms like, like a maniac. You know, he's just such a, a bizarre individual. And then you look at Roman Reigns, the powerhouse, the muscle, the guy who's doing the power bombs in those uh, triple power bombs. He does the spear, which is something fans have always loved, whether it was Goldberg, Rhino, or Edge. The spear has always been a very popular move. And now he's, he's added more moves. He does that Superman punch, which a lot of fans love, because he kind of builds up to it. He kind of cocks his wrist, and he punches the, the floor, the, the mat, and then he just launches himself, and he does that kind of flying punch. And he does that leaping drop kick. So all these guys have unique tools that make them special and make them stand out. Whereas the Nexus, I mean, you had Justin Gabriel who did that really cool, you know, was it uh, 360 splash? I mean, yeah, that's cool. And you had Wade Barrett who was the mouthpiece, the leader. And then you had everybody else who was just there. Nobody really stood out. Whereas the Shield, each one of them stand out individually, and then when you put them together as a unit, they're even stronger. And like I said, they, as they pointed out, they do protect them. You know, it was a very long time before we saw the Shield lose. And, they, and before then, they pretty much decimated everyone there was to beat. They just hammered them. They served their justice. And then we saw them lose on SmackDown. That was very smart. Having the Shield's first loss on SmackDown and not Monday Night Raw. Because let's be honest, Monday Night Raw is the flagship show. How many people really watch SmackDown? Amen. To have them lose on SmackDown, a majority of fans probably never even saw it. So maybe they didn't even know. So to them, the Shield was still that unstoppable force. I mean, I remember that SmackDown match. As they pointed out, you know, the announcers, were, were they made such a big deal out of it. Like, oh, my God, finally, finally the WWE wins, and they defeated this force. And it was like this big celebration, like the WWE won some sort of championship or an award. They really made such a big deal out of it. But that's cool. They made it a big deal because they wanted S.H.I.E.L.D. to be a serious threat. And the Nexus, even though they were destroying guys and they had that gang warfare uh, NWO mentality of just destroying guys, destroying the arena, anything that was WWE-related, it just they didn't stand out enough. They were a lot of young guys who we never saw before, and they were putting them in the situation, and it was just too many guys to focus on. I mean, there was just too much stuff going on, and as they pointed out, you know, eventually they lost with John Cena, then they did the whole thing where Cena was a slave, and then they had this whole thing with CM Punk, where then CM Punk became the new leader of the Nexus, so I feel like they never really quite knew what they were doing or where they were going. They were just, they didn't really have a, a good plan for the Nexus, whereas the Shield, they have just done a brilliant job with these guys. We're comparing these guys to groups like the Four Horsemen, saying that you know the Shield might be one of the greatest factions, not just in the WWE, but you know you have to compare them to the other factions like the Fabulous Freebirds and you know the Heenan family and things like that. 
and how successful they are individually <laughs> and how great they are as a team. It's, I mean, we really, in recent years, we haven't seen anything quite like the Shield just because, like I said, as a unit, I don't know if there's anyone better because when you see their six-man tag matches, they steal the show. I said it uh, today on King Jordan Radio. They stole the show at Extreme Rules. Despite the fact Daniel yeah. Bryan's the most popular superstar, the fans with the yes chant, they love him to death, which is awesome, and I'm very happy for Daniel Bryan. But the Shield stole the show at the pay-per-view. You put them in a six-man tag, and they just can't fail. They've had great matches with everybody, the Wyatt family, with Goldust and Cody Rhodes, I mean, with other superstars, you know, over, over the past few months, they've just had so many great matches, either as, like I said, a six-man tag or even individually. Guys like Seth Rollins, Dean Ambrose challenging John Cena, Daniel Bryan, even CM Punk when he was in the company at the time. These guys had five-star matches on Monday Night Raw or on SmackDown. They were great matches. And how many great matches do you remember from the Nexus? Probably none, you know, uh, unfortunately. I mean, they were Probably a great zero. group. They, yeah, I mean, they could have been a great group. I mean, they had that, you know, as I mentioned, you would compare them to the NWO just because there were so many of them. There were so many guys in this faction, and they pretty much had too many scared. But, uh, yeah, there's just too many. There's too many guys. It was hard. The WWE didn't know really what to do with them. If you tried to focus on Wade Barrett and push him as the Intercontinental Champion, what about the other seven guys? What about the other five guys? Like I said, eventually they even released Michael Tarver. So Michael Tarver was done. Ryback, I think, got hurt. So then he was done. So then you basically, your numbers are dwindling more and more. And, again, these guys aren't really standing out. So, unfortunately, you know, they're not, even though they could have been something big, for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. But it is working out for the Shield and this is one thing that they're doing right. One thing that the WWE has been doing right the past two years, we've seen them do some ridiculous things, but they haven't messed up and they haven't dropped the ball with the Shield. They've really done a great job with them, whether they're protecting them or not. You know, we, we've seen them lose to the Wyatt members. We've seen them lose in singles at matches, but it hasn't hurt them lately just because they are so over and they are loved by the fans, and they were heels, and now they're faces, and the fans are still behind them. They're now challenging the authority, so you're really definitely behind the shield more than ever, and especially with Evolution back. They just got a big win against, you know, guys who were world champions, guys who I think they said if you combine the uh, title reigns, there's 31 world championships among Triple H, Randy Orton, and Batista, and these new guys, you know, Dean Ambrose, Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, guys who have never been a world champion, have just decimated evolution. They beat them on their own turf, and they beat them with, you know, the Shield's own rules. They're just very chaotic. They're very chaotic, but they, they're just so much fun to watch. They're just a, a blast, and they've always done a great job each and every week. There's definitely someone I look forward to watching, you know, when SmackDown comes along and you know John Cena probably won't wrestle, you know, you know, Tisa may not wrestle on SmackDown, but the Shield will always deliver. Shield is definitely uh, one of the future. Okay, uh, let's take a listen to uh, this Ring of Honor clip. 
and then we'll uh, talk more, and then we'll uh, end the program. Let's take a look. We go to the Ring of Honor lineup. I want to just run through the lineup really quick for the Ring of Honor New Japan show, War of the Worlds, coming up on uh, May 17th. Sold out Hammerstein Ballroom, New York City. Uh, they could sell out the Hammerstein, and TNA is going to try to sell out the Grand Ballroom, which is smaller, upstairs in the same building in uh, June. We'll see if they could pull that one off. But, uh, yeah, we go from that to an actual wrestling show here that I'm looking forward to a lot. I got my ticket. I'm ready to go. Uh, be my first Ring of Honor show since uh, last year. When did I go to Ring of Honor last? I think it was when uh, Jay Briscoe won the uh, title WrestleMania weekend last year. might have been the last one I went to. Uh, but anyway, the lineup has been released, and it will be the Ring of Honor champion Adam Cole against Jushin Liger. Liger is 50 years old this year, which is uh, pretty amazing. IWGP champion Kazuchika Okada defending against Michael Elgin. Now, the, uh, the champions right now are Cole and Okada. That could change because I think both titles will be defended between now and then, obviously. So if the titles change, I guess it will be whoever the champion is against Liger and whoever the champion is against uh, Elgin. And it uh, would not shock me if uh, AJ Styles could become the new uh, IWGP champion before then because I think he's got a title shot, I want to say the beginning of May, uh, coming up in the next week or so. So uh, it is possible that title could change hands beforehand. But anyway... Ring of Honor Tag Team titles on the line. The Young Bucks defend against the Red Dragon. IWGP Tag Team Champions, Carl Anderson and Luke Gallows against the Briscoes. TV Champion, Jay Lethal against Kushida. Shinseki Nakamura against Kevin Steen. And Hiroshi Tanahashi against Michael Bennett, which is an interesting match. Also appearing on the show will be AJ Styles, Jado and Gato, The Decade, which is uh, comprised of Roderick Strong, BJ Whitmer, and Jimmy Jacobs and more. So I am looking forward to this show big time. Uh, I've never seen the uh, the New Japan... I mean, I've seen... I shouldn't say that, actually. I have seen uh, Carl Anderson before, but uh, a lot of the New Japan guys I've never seen live. I've you know seen some of the iPay-per-views. I actually do enjoy uh, their stuff. And uh, Ring of Honor, like I said, it's been a while since I've been to a show. Uh, last one, I think, was when Jay Briscoe won the belt, which was a cool moment. And uh, this is going to be... This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to this show. It sold out pretty quickly. Uh, there was a lot of demand for tickets. There may still be some tickets available because when they did the whole configuration for the building and uh, production and all that, I think in the last week or two they may have opened up some more tickets. So if you wanted to go to the show, if you look into it right now and don't waste any time, you might actually be able to get a ticket to the show, unless they're all sold out again, I'm not sure. Uh, but that might be something for you if you live in the uh, New York area, you want to go, you might still have a chance. All right, JJ, your thoughts on Ring of Honor? Do you watch it at all? Um, You know, with Ring of Honor, I've heard so many great things about it. I've only seen very few, maybe on YouTube or so. Uh, I know it's it's a really great motion where they put an emphasis on wrestling. It does feel kind of like a throwback to the old days of ECW, quality wrestling, just uh, great stuff. I'm a huge fan of uh, guys like Jay Lethal, um, I've seen in TNA, of course, and AJ Styles, who I believe, as he pointed out, AJ Styles, I think he is the New Japan uh, Pro Wrestling Champion, so I'm not sure how that's going to change the card of that pay-per-view, but uh, AJ Styles did win the uh, IWJP uh, title, 
recently. So, like I said, I'm not sure how that's going to factor into the pay-per-view. But, uh, I mean, it seems like it's going to be a great card. I've heard a lot. I mean, uh, uh, Justin uh, Thunder Tiger or Liger, I've heard so many great things of all these years. 50 years old, and yet he can still go out there and hang with these young guys. Uh, the tag teams, I've always heard great stuff about the Young Bucks, a really great team, uh, lots of fun to watch. Um, I probably won't get a chance to, to see this this pay-per-view, but uh, it, it should be a great show. Uh, if you're a Ring of Honor fan, you're going to love it. It should be you know, one of their best. Uh, they've always put on, you know, great, really great matches. And I think it's very interesting how Ring of Honor is working with New Japan. And then I look at TNA, and I see that TNA is now working with, you know, Wrestle One, and they're working with AAA. And it seems that they're trying to have this kind of cross-promotion pro- as well. So I think it's very interesting. TNA is maybe copying Ring of Honor, I want to say, but, uh, you know, Ring of Honor is always very awesome, and I wish I could see more of them, and I wish they had, you know, um, a, a TV channel, or I wish somebody would pick them up so that I could see them weekly because, I mean, I've always, always heard nothing but great stuff about Ring of Honor. Absolutely. Have you ever seen it in person? No, unfortunately I haven't seen it, but I know, like, whenever I go to a WWE show, there's always somebody, you know, handing out flyers, to a Ring of Honor, if they're ever in town in Chicago, you know they, they're always mm-hmm. promoting. They're always, you know, doing everything they can to get new people, you know, into Ring of Honor. So I think that's really awesome, and you know, I definitely wish them the best. I hope they have an awesome show. Yeah, uh, and uh, once you see the show live, uh, I think you'll have much more of an interest as opposed to not seeing it live. I, I felt the same way. So uh, we'll see. Uh, now let's wrap it up with the uh, Monday Night War from this thing. If yes, we could get uh, into that. Yeah, Monday Night Raw was a very interesting. As I said, you know, the Shield defeated Evolution, so automatically, you know, Evolution is going to be gunning for Shield, and they kicked off the show with a battle royal, which was basically 19 men in the battle royal against Dean Ambrose defending his United States championship. And Dean Ambrose, you know, he was in a tough position against, like I said, there's 19 other guys in this 20-man battle royal for his United States championship. You know, he had his back against the wall. All these superstars were gunning for him. But uh, eventually it came down between Dean Ambrose and Sheamus. And Sheamus broke-kicked Dean Ambrose and eliminated him, and Sheamus is now your new United States champion. So already Dean Ambrose suffered a loss on Monday Night Raw, but that wouldn't be the last time you would see Dean Ambrose because now Triple H had booked Shield for a match later tonight, or later, you know, that night, against the Wyatt family. So we would see Shield versus the Wyatt family for the fourth time on television and uh, that was an awesome main event. But uh, before we get to the main event, Rob Van Dam had a rematch with Cesaro. It was just one-on-one, but it ended in a disqualification. Uh, Ryback took on Cody Rhodes, and Cody seems to be on a bit of a losing streak, and it seems that he's kind of not getting along with his brother Goldust. There seems to be some friction among the two brothers. You know, we've been talking about a potential you know, break up 
between Cody Rhodes and, and Goldust, the Rose Brothers, so I don't know if they're slowly kind of building towards that. They keep saying they're on the same page, but yet Cody keeps on losing, so we'll see what happens there. Of course, again, Alexander Rusev had a match uh, with uh, Kofi Kingston. Again, the fans just uh, they just don't seem that into Rusev right now, but, uh, you know, he picked up another win. Daniel Bryan had a really nice match with Alberto Del Rio. Uh, but, and again, you know, Mick Foley said something very interesting. You know, I, I love checking out Foley because he's very opinionated. And, you know, like I said, right now he's not even working for the WWE. So he's basically saying, you know, speaking from his heart as a fan. And he compared Daniel Bryan and Kane's feud to a feud that Kane had a few years ago with, believe it or not, Zack Ryder. And we all remember Zack Ryder, who was very popular. Everyone was, you know, woo, 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 we want Ryder. And there was just this big kind of Ryder movement. And it kind of went nowhere. You know, they gave him the opportunity to be the United States champion. But then they had Kane, you know, choke slam him off the, the stage. And that, next thing you know, Ryder's in a wheelchair. Then he was dating Eve Torres. But then Eve Torres turned out to be this kind of sort of conniving, backstabbing witch and she turned on him. So, you know, Zack Ryder, who was on top of the world, you know, United States champion, finally he's on Monday Night Raw every week. He's giving TV time, and the WWE just just completely, I don't know what they did, but they dropped the ball with Zack Ryder, and now he basically faded into obscurity again. And, we're, and Mick Foley said he's hoping that this isn't the case with Daniel Bryan. Daniel Bryan, who's won the WWE World Championship, he's on a very big high right now. And now he's feuding with Kane as well. And they did this kind of silly sort of horror movie gimmick where Kane was chasing Daniel Bryan and his wife, Brie Bella, and they were going towards their car, and, and they were in the backstage. And Kane just sort of magically appeared in the car, and then Daniel Bryan was fighting him and trying to throw him out of the car so he could leave with Brie. And then Kane climbed on top of the car, and he's reaching through the sunroof pulling at Bree's hair, and you see Brian just kind of whacking him, and then they just kind of drive off, and, you know, Kane's just kind of standing there. So, I mean, I hope that they're not going to do a lot of silly things. You know, we talked, Chris Jericho mentioned that one uh, kind of silly thing they did with Hogan and the Warrior, where Hogan was looking into the mirror, and he saw the Warrior, and then he looked away, and then they were gone, and yet, you know, we all could see it as well, so it wasn't just, you know, uh, Hogan you know, hallucinating. It was something we all thought. It, it it was something that was just kind of maybe too silly or it's hard to take serious. And I feel like maybe they might be doing that with Daniel Bryan, which I hope doesn't hurt him as a champion. And I hope the fans don't, you know, start to abandon the Yes movement because he's being booked in all these silly sort of gimmicky, you know, cliches. Bad New Barrett also defended his newly intercontinental championship against Big E. Big E had his rematch, and uh, Bad News Barrett retained the title. Uh, kind of funny. You might I don't know if you saw this or not, King, but you maybe you you probably I don't know if you'd appreciate it. But we all know Mother's Day is coming up, so WWE, in honor of Mother's Day, they aired the Hall of Fame speech of Mr. T in which he talked about his Oh, mother. my God. He loved his mother. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was something. 
in honor of Mother's Day. That was that's why they they aired that Pacific uh, uh, video. That but, is uh, the ultimate Mother's Day speech. <laughs> yes, it is. But uh, moving on, someone two hundred times Mother. <laughs> yeah, and he mentioned that every holiday he was celebrating. He was really celebrating his mother, and even on Father's Day, he loved his mother. Yes. Oh. That was it was funny, but it was definitely like you said the ultimate Mother's Day speech. But uh, moving on, someone from NXT made their debut on the main roster. A guy by the name of Adam Rose and his Exotic Express, in which he has a sort of unique cast of characters accompany him down the ring. You'll see guys dressed up in costumes, bunny outfits, women just jumping up and down. It's, they just try to have this sort of this party atmosphere wherever Adam Rose goes. And he interrupted, of all people, probably the biggest party pooper there is, Zeb Coulter. Zeb Coulter and Jack Swagger upset about uh, their loss at the pay-per-view, upset of uh, Cesaro, you know, abandoning them. They were upset just about immigrants in general, and if you're not from this country, et cetera, and they wanted to deport Paige and Sheamus and Cesaro, and they basically went on this whole tirade. But then Adam Rose from NXT made his debut on the main roster, and he went up to Deb Coulter, and he said, don't be a lemon, be a rosebud. And he said a lot of his unique catchphrases that he's been saying for months on NXT. And then we saw you know, Jack Swagger try to take him out, and then he threw Swagger out of the ring, and basically all of his you know, entourage came into the ring, and they were all just sort of partying and dancing with Deb Coulter. And uh, kind of unique to Adam, Adam Rose, is if you've never seen Adam Rose, and if this was your first time watching him, on NXT, the fans would actually sing along to his theme song. So he kind of has this wow. unique song, and, you know, and the fans, just, they kind of hum along, kind of similar to Fandango and the, the whole Fandangoing. But uh, these people, they just kind of they sing along to a song. They have a good time. It's, it's supposed to be a fun character. So I'm curious to see if this continues and if other cities and other towns continue that kind of spirit of Adam Rose's character. Uh, it was what a way to make your debut, and he hasn't wrestled yet. Uh, he's a pretty interesting person to see if you watch him wrestle. I've seen him wrestle on NXT, and he's a very unique, bizarre uh, individual because he doesn't really – it's hard to put in the words, but Adam Rose is a unique character. When he's in the ring, he kind of skips along, and he's very carefree. He's a free spirit, things of that nature. He's a, he's a quite a character. So I'm, I'm curious to see whether or not the WWE audience you know, identifies or responds well to him. The people in NXT love him. If you watch Adam Rose in NXT, the fans love him. They're into all his quirkiness and his silliness, so I'm curious to see whether or not the WWE fans embrace him. But, uh, you know, we won't see. Time will tell. And as I said, the main event was the fourth match in the series between Shield and the Wyatt. I mean, it was uh, another classic. Anytime you put these six guys in a ring, they always have an awesome, awesome physical match, and they basically were doing all types of, you know, crazy stuff. Bray Wyatt, who's, you know... Uh, really big right now. Surprisingly, one person missing from Raw 
was John Cena. And I think that was their way of selling the loss to Bray wow. Wyatt. Cena was not on Monday Night Raw that night. And they did say that John Cena will be on main event, which was uh, tonight on the WWE Network. So John Cena was on main event. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time since John Cena hasn't been on Monday Night Raw. I mean, the only time he misses Raw is when he's hurt. I mean, hell, even when he's making movies, he still shows up to Monday Night Raw. The guy almost never misses a show. So that definitely goes to show you that Bray Wyatt is in his head, the fact that they would have him, you know, sell that loss and not appear on Monday Night Raw. But uh, like I said, he's on main event. I'm sure he addressed the situation tonight. I'll probably catch it after the show. But uh, Wyatt's Shield, again, awesome. But, of course, Evolution made their presence felt, and they interfered in the match, and they caused a distraction, and eventually the Wyatts would pick up another victory over the Shield. But uh, in true Evolution manner, once the Wyatts had the Shield beat, they came in and they laid a beat down on the Shield, and Evolution even copied the Shield's triple powerbomb that we've seen them do dozens and dozens of times in the last two years, and Evolution... Triple H, Randy Orton picked up Roman Reigns, and they gave him to Batista, and Batista delivered his, you know, Batista bomb, but it was a triple power bomb instead to Roman Reigns. So Evolution stood tall, even though they had, they suffered the loss at Extreme Rules. They're definitely not done with the Shield and making them pay. Should be interesting coming up next month. Payback. Hey, and uh, we'll see what's organized uh, for that pay-per-view as the WWE looks forward to that. And then uh, uh, another pay-per-view in July and then the big SummerSlam. So uh, I bet you they're uh, building up their uh, momentum for SummerSlam. Yeah, as I we mean, speak the storyline. Yes, yeah, so the last few years of SummerSlam has been uh, a pretty good show. I thought... Uh, they did a really great job yeah. building SummerSlam. They even did like a sort of a, we know we have WrestleMania access, and they have a sort of a week dedicated to the fans interacting with superstars. And last year they had sort of an access too. That was actually when they made the, uh, the announcement that, you know, Warrior was in the video game, and they had this whole panel and stuff. So SummerSlam is becoming a, a bigger and bigger event every year. They're trying to make it the, the pay-per-view that it used to be, you know, in the 80s and 90s. It was one of the big four, and I think they're definitely trying to recapture that. So hopefully this year will be, you know, no exception, and they'll try to continue that and making it even larger than it was last year. Absolutely. All right, JJ, thank you for coming on, giving your expertise on the world of pro wrestling. We'll be back next week with Dominic and Blackjack. And uh, enjoy your Raw next Monday and uh, Impact this Thursday. My pleasure, King. Thanks, man. Talk to you later. Okay. Thanks a million.